Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Off The Record. Our last two shows were a little different, or maybe it was just our last show where we talked about our favorite punk albums. And that one before that was all about a boy band that's pop punk. Uh, but this one's a little back to normal. And uh, Wait, you admit that? <laughs> I don't know. That was just for your sake. I didn't want you to attack me again. <laughs> Um, and uh, so, yeah, you can you can keep up to date with everything we have going on at offtherecord.fm. That's where we keep our show notes uh, for links of things we talk about on the show. You can also ask us questions or leave us feedback or rate the show on iTunes, which helps maybe some, hopefully. Uh, so to kick things off, we have two things to follow up on episode titled Gimmick Core. Um, I made a point to say that Tumblr's user base now must be much bigger than MySpace's or is bigger, and that means better things for music. Uh, we wanted to double check that. It turns out there is a vast difference. Uh, it seems like MySpace's peak of users was 36 million, which seems kind of crazy to consider that Facebook is now at 1 billion users. Um, but in comparison to Tumblr, Tumblr now has 100 98,700,000 Tumblr blogs. Uh, and that's a little different than specific accounts, of course. A user can have one, two, I don't know, I assume dozens of accounts, but we're going we're gonna to just assume that that equals out to more than 36 million people. Uh, I myself have six accounts for different things and different test things for the website, but most people don't have different layouts they're testing all the time. Um, Jesse, do you want to do the follow-up on the... Pop and Molly video. We talked about that Electric Zoo is now, after last year's um, plague of people ODing and um, they're getting shut down for a day, they're going to do an anti-taking Molly PSA. And if you go to the show notes and click on it, it's pretty laughably pathetic. It is not going to prevent anybody from doing Molly. And I'm sure if they played this before Nero goes on and everybody's about to hit their peak on the Molly, I'm sure it got a hell of a good laugh because it's really pathetic. And one of the funny things is, like, you know, this is never going to stop, you know. I mean, and I, don't, I should also say, I don't think the festivals truly want to stop it. So they're not using effective means. They're just, you know, gagging it. Like, they know also the thing, too, is that, like, kids are smuggling Molly in in suntan lotion containers and putting it in a Ziploc bag and because they know that they can't tell them they can't bring suntan lotion because then they'll be liable for skin cancer. So the festival orders want them to be on Molly. They want them to have a good time. They want them to come out. They want them to get the Molly in. They just want them to not do it so irresponsibly. Um, I did appreciate that they had the kid drinking the water, though, the whole time, because supposedly that's all you need to do, right? <laughs> it could be, yeah. I th if anyone wanted to stop anything, obviously you can never stop all the whatever things are illegal at a festival or at a show or whatever, but there's got to be clearer ways. Um, and in such a part... Though I don't know a ton about the culture, obviously. It's such a part of that culture, from what I understand. It would be kind of... It, it, as somebody who goes to these shows, yes, it's a huge yeah, part like of the Even I went to this brand new show in, in Forest Hill Stadium this past weekend, and like, you know, half the crowd had multiple like joints. And then this, like a few people had like... I'm not sure what kind of drugs they were, but they were a little harder. Um, and it was just kind of like, you know, the security didn't care about anything. Even me just going in normally, there were these ID checks for buying liquor and uh, the security ID checkers were so outnumbered as long, like truly as long as you were holding out 
your ID, they just gave you a wristband. Um, I was there for a guy to put about 15 wristbands on people, and he didn't look at a single ID except that a person was holding some sort of identification card in their hands. And obviously, this is not the case at most festivals or whatever. That's the first time it's ever happened to me, but I was just like, damn, what if like some 16-year-old kid gets stoked, sees that this is happening, and buys a lot of too expensive Heineken because that's all they were selling? Oh, yeah, I had never had a Heineken before. I'm so proud that you got to get through your life this long without having to taste that disgusting piss water. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, it came in these little, like, Red Bull-sized cans that this guy was carrying around, you know, a normal seller was carrying around on the tennis court in a backpack, and he was just kind of, like, popping them out of his backpack. And that was kind of amusing. Um, but that was it was better than the beer. Um, but, you know, I, there's just clearly things we can everyone could do to prevent this kind of action. I just feel like it's they need to cover their liability and anything past then is too much for them to do. Agreed. So listener questions. Jesse, could you talk about the qualities you look for in producers to work with uh, as an engineer? So this question's funny because I don't look for producers to work with as an engineer. They actually hire me. Most records I'm the producer on. There are some producers who I work for, but I don't come to them, they come to me. If I was looking for a producer to, yeah, I actually, I can't even answer that. I would never look for another producer worker because I want to produce the records I, want, <laughs> I make. There's a little more follow-up pointed at you then for tech production. I'm planning to go to university for tech production. What's your opinion on going to university for that? What sort of stuff should I be trying to do now outside of school? We pretty much said all of this in episode four where we talked about college, so I would prefer somebody to go back and listen to that. What you should be doing outside of school if you want to go into it? Well, I'd advise you to drop out and just work as hard as you can um, recording bands for free and just doing great work and getting to know how to make records and taking that money you would have put towards school and doing that. But if you're already there, yeah, just make as many records as you can outside of school. That's really what you could do and try to find great bands to work with that will work with you for as little money as you you know they're willing to uh, do it for you with and take your time doing it. Cool. So one more, uh, and this is not something we've really touched on, is at what point do you think a band? Uh, at what point do, do you think a band should think about touring internationally? How do you think they should go about it? And can you guys uh, talk a little about going international? In quotes. Uh, so I'll I'll take that to start. It's an interesting thing. I'm I'm actually going through this right now with Knuckle Puck, uh, where we are announcing a our first UK tour in about soonish. Uh, and it was very cool because we, we'd been wanting to poke around for a while. We had, a, we had a chance to get a really good booking agent. And I guess that's where we should start. Um, going to Europe without an agent from Europe, unless you are just a, you're, you're getting a, a good, decent support offer for another band that is going on a legit uh, UK or European tour, like that's, that's a must in my mind. Like touring. We talked about this on an episode that we pre-taped that will be coming out eventually, but uh, doing a TBA tour across the U.S. is very different than doing a TBA tour across a foreign country um, where prices are different, hospitality is different, everything's different. Um, so in my mind, I it's just tough going. It's tough touring internationally. If you're a U.S. band, you're probably going to lose money unless you have a lot of success and are very lucky your first one or two times going to Europe. 
But at the same point, just like doing a weekend tour once a month or twice a month, it's good to build up. It's important to build up uh, notoriety and just kind of resume builders for getting overseas because if you're for some reason hopefully get picked up by a good label in the U.S. and you put out an album and there's push behind it and then you want to get over to Europe, you might have a better time getting into some rooms and getting into different locations and going over on different packages if you already have on your resume that, hey, we've been to Europe once or twice or three times before. But it's a really tough thing. Um, With Light Years, for example... Right as I started managing the band, they already had a UK tour confirmed and they lost, you know, they lost a good amount of money and the promoter that we are using kind of sucked and it just wasn't a good experience. And since then, I have maybe even to the band's protest held off on us going to Europe because I just I'm not trying to make us lose money if it's pointless and we don't have a record coming out and there's not a good means of promotion. Um but for Knuckle Puck, we're in a little bit of a different situation where things are currently all feeling good. In fact, you know, we released a split and did a tour with a band that's very popular in the UK called Neck Deep. So we already have a little exposure there. Um, and beyond that, it's been really important to me to get Knuckle Puck's music into Europe the best I can. Um, and that's something I'd recommend as well. There's a great shop, for example, called Banquet Records, um, and they're kind of... They're an indie record store that's just doing such a phenomenal job and has been really instrumental for labels like smaller labels like Run for Cover or Top Shelf or even Bad Timing to take our product and sell it there. Um, so I've gotten all of Knuckle Puck's releases in there and it's we've made a push to sell it so people are familiar with the band. I would say this. You shouldn't go to Europe until a reliable promoter approaches you or you team with a label that's going to put your music out over there that um, can then hook you up with that reliable promoter. Um, you can't just go to Europe and say, and wing it, just like you said. You will. You can die. You can end up in ho- that movie Hostile. Totally. If, you do, if yeah. you do the wrong things, like, you end up in shitty squats that, like, you'll get tetanus. And, and I, I don't say this is exaggeration, because bands that came up in my generation had that happen. And while you don't hear about it, it's mostly because it's really hard to get over there without teaming up with a good promoter. Um, but that's really the key. And most of these promoters are watching America to see who they should bring over. So if you get a really good buzz here and then you start talking to your friends' bands who you've then made friends with through the buzz and said, who brought you over to Europe and you email them and they're not into you, you just got to wait till they're kind of into you or you team up with a better label. You can't do the thing you do here where you just email promoters and try to make it happen. And yeah, your first tour there you're probably not going to make a dime of money and you probably will lose money right and you know that's okay as long as it's okay to you in that case it's not okay for everyone we should talk about though that how important this is because the other thing is too is like you can't tour america 10 months a year and keep it viable like one of the ways big bands uh are able to make a living these days or you know i shouldn't even say big bands one of the ways like even man overboard and transit in the beginning it just like i think of like Every other tour would be Europe for us, and then we'd go to Japan, Australia, and this all helped to make money and solidify a fan base all around the world and make it so that it's a a viable band that they can make a living off of. Absolutely. Um, It's just such a tricky thing. You're also going to get 
hopefully, I mean, this is not a bad thing, of course, you're going to get promoters randomly emailing you maybe at some points to be like, hey, will you play this whatever show in Germany or the UK or Ireland, whatever. And you're going to just have to say no for a while, probably because it's really not feasible. And there's a difference between going over there and hopefully doing well in merch and stuff and, you know, just losing, just being way in the red because of plane tickets versus being on the red because of plane tickets and then just no one's going to your shows. You're not selling any merch. Travel's expensive. That's the other thing. You're No, I've only heard of a few bands ever that I know in my circles like driving themselves. And so you often have to pay for a driver, pay for a van. It's much different. The expenses are just, they can be overwhelming if things aren't thought out. So just be smart. Take a step back. Ask if you have any friends that have gone overseas for a tour, ask them ask them everything that went wrong and the few things that probably went right and learn learn from that. Let's just say one last thing too. If somebody approaches you, you need to get references and call those references. Don't be shy. Talk to somebody who's they've done a tour with because it can be your life. <laughs> yeah, it can be your life or it could be you getting conned out of thousands of dollars and having a huge setback in your career. Yeah. It's really, really important. Like, I'm somebody who doesn't like to get those references, and my first inclination is, like, I don't want to even deal with that waste of time, but I made sure I did on every one of the European, or inter, I should say international tours that any of my bands did. Totally, and then just, sorry, one last, last thing. You make sure also your papers are all in check. There's oh, a, yeah. That's the most, that's like, <laughs> that sounds so dumb, but, you know, every once in a while you'll see on Property Zach or Absolute Punk or whatever, Band enters country, gets turned around in customs. And, uh, yeah, you just lost a ton of money for nothing. Yeah, and that, that we should say why they're turned around. It's because you have some sort of uh, offense on your record. A lot of countries don't take well to drugs. A lot of countries really, really don't take well to any violent crimes. So if a member of your band has that in their past, you got to get it, get it taken care of and talk to the customs office before you go over. Yeah, we obviously see that most with Canada, and that can suck, obviously, but that's a lot better than Australia or the UK or whatever. Yeah. Australia is a big one, too. They're very serious over there. We had to, was working with a band, and we had to take care of something before um, before Soundwave, and it was just, it was fine, but it was just a little stressful. It's so funny, because that Crocodile Dundee guy is so violent. <laughs> Okay, that's it for listener questions. You can ask us more at offtherecord.fm or you can tweet at us at offtherecordfm. Um, so first, normal topic this week, Justin Pierre, a while ago, answered, Justin Pierre from Motion City Soundtrack answered a really interesting question to me on Tumblr about, has anyone ever referred to you as a tortured genius? What's your stance on the term? Do you believe that? One must have a mental illness in order to create to truly uh, to create truly deep and worthwhile music or art, uh, and so that's a really interesting topic to me, and I know it is to Jesse as well. In my mind, it's it's really easy to talk about the like quote unquote crazy artists we know because those are the ones that are fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah, fun to talk about uh, in the media. Or internally when you're on your way to a show or when you're standing in line on a show. And they're just the ones that make <clears throat> the most noise. Um, you know, nine out of ten say anything interviews still reference, because interviewers are lazy, like 
Max Bemis being crazy 10 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And that's because people are still always like, oh, I forgot about that. Ooh, that's like interesting. It's just, it's the same as any pop culture kind of thing versus a band with equal talent, fan base, whatever, just being like, what, what, what's your new album about? You're not crazy, so I don't need to ask about you being crazy. Um, it's just an easier talking point, but it's also really easy, I think, for people to be like, Max Bemis is, is a real boy, is much better than Hebrews because he's crazy. And I, that's kind of where Justin spent some time talking, where he, of course, if you didn't know, struggled for many, many years with alcoholism and other recreational drug use and has been clean for a while now. But uh, the first the first few motion soundtrack, motion shitty soundtrack albums uh, sort of followed a theme of one was about being an alcoholic, one was about getting through that, and the third was sort of about remission of alcoholism kind of thing. Uh, so, Jesse, you are talking about this a lot in something you're working on. I'm writing a book that uh, is probably about a third of it is about this. I don't think you need to be tortured to make great art, and I know it because I've seen people make great art who aren't this tortured artist, but we kind of said it. So, like, one of the things I say in my book that I wrote before is, um, you know, when we talk about the whole thing where we're going to get into this right after this too of like, you know, who gets press and how you get press. Some of getting press is saying really interesting things in interviews. And some of that sometimes interesting things comes because the person's crazy and they don't have a filter. Or they just say whatever the hell comes out of their mouth. I don't think for any, for a single moment you need to be a tortured artist or you need to be some crazy drug addict. But there's also another side of me that says, you know, a lot of the most popular records of, you know, that re- really hit everybody um, are made by people who are going through some serious pain in their life and often coping with it with drugs and alcohol. Bill Maher has this great joke. He says, uh, you want to ban heroin? My record collection is a strong argument against it. Huh. So there's a distinction maybe, right? There's a thing. We're always trying to find, like, as humans, like, the one answer to, like, what you do. And, like, I think it even feeds into, like, a lot of musicians, like, I'm going to be fucked up. I'm going to... I'm going to not fix myself and I'm going to be a little crazy and like, no, you don't need to do that. That's just one story. And yes, it's a really interesting story. I mean, all those stories of Max Bemis taping his mother to a chair and threatening her, those are really great gossip points. Didn't know about that. Interested now. <laughs> we'll talk I'm, later. I'm, I, I, yeah, we'll talk <laughs> later. I'm, I'm, I'm not telling the story on the air because I don't. I, I like Max. And um, But here's an interesting thing. And I will say this as somebody, I've worked with Max. I really like him. Is a Real Boy is one of my favorite records of all time. I don't really like any of his work after he got on meds. And that's a tough thing to reconcile because I want him to be happy as a human, but I don't really like any work past Is a Real Boy. I actually don't think I, there's even a song I like from Say Anything past that. And it comes a lot. Like, there's a lot of times the album when the guy gets sober or the girl gets sober kind of sucks. And I think there is a thing that, yes, there's cocktails we can make in our brain that make us in a certain creative state that other people appeal to or like like but the other thing is too is there's perfectly normal nice people who make great records all the time right so maybe it's tough because i'm sort of with you on a lot of those bands or say anything's a band where i like all of their catalog except one release but um there are and i don't know i can't i can't pin pin pinpoint other artists in my head right now but the list is probably really long where there's this huge story around one album because of a lot of troubles. 
and then those troubles go away because that artist is happy and maybe the fan base dwindles. But I, I think it's important that maybe that there's a distinction between tortured genius where someone has to maybe have a mental illness throughout their whole career where, hey, I'm just in a rough spot right now and here's a lot of heavy emotion that might connect with you more. And, you know, we, we can get off of the say anything example, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the, let's just say the writing ability of Is Real Boy might be the same as an album three, three, out, three releases later for Say Anything. But the emotional impact is not the same because, you know, I think a lot of where you are as a human being as well, the listener plays in a large part of that just because... I was uh, is a real boy is ten this year, so I was uh, I was eleven when is a real boy came out. I didn't hear it until I was probably sixteen or fifteen, um, and at that point I was in a state where, you know, I was going through what a fifteen or sixteen year old goes through, and that connected with me. But if I heard uh, say anything self titled record at that age, um, which is actually my my favorite say anything record, I think that would have even connected me a little bit more. And it really has nothing to do with what kind of tortured artist or genius Max Bemis was or wasn't at each time of writing. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think anyone ever really discusses, or I think it always gets lost in the freight of people being like, "Oh, I wish he was unhappy again." I think Death Cab for Cutie is another good example where. Most people didn't like codes or keys, and like there were these crazy comments of like, "I hope you and Zoe Deschanel break up," or like, "You should go back to being an alcoholic." And it's like, "What are you doing? Like, what are you, like you are human?" But you want that person to keep giving you what you emotionally need, and that's a very—it's the same thing I was talking about with Bax. And like, I see it because I work with bands over a lot of records a lot of time, and you see when their cocktail changes up, like you know when the alcohol starts mixing with the weed or maybe they quit alcohol and just go to the weed and like it can get rough and you really won't just want them to keep doing that thing. But I think that's also what makes you an artist is that I don't think artists make good art when they care about those type of things. They have to just do what's right for them. I think there's a, a another really good point to make here is that's like there is a vast, vast catalog of music made by people who are happy falling in love. Absolutely. <laughs> not, not just... Yeah getting their heart torn out. Like, you know, and truth be told, as a producer, I always find it very, very interesting. And, you know, I'm 36. I've never been married. I've, my longest relationship's three years. So I've had a lot of points of falling in love with somebody. Um, I tend to find I do my best work when I'm falling in love and happy as a producer. Um, and I do my worst work when I'm miserable and, like, hating myself from a breakup. I tend to gravitate towards that thing of, like, I want to be in that good place. And this is a lot of what I write about in the book is that one of the most toxic things I think we all do is, you know, you read these Rolling Stone or Property of Zach interviews and you read about how the story of how this person you respect got there. And then you think about how you emulate it. And I should say this, I've did this in my life. Like, you know, I looked at Axl Rose and I said, man, he's messed up. I looked at Kurt Cobain and said, man, he's messed up. I looked at Billy Jones and said, man, he's messed up and wanted to emulate that. And... It was toxic, and it's not healthy to do. You need to be yourself and find your own path. Uh, yeah, there's, it's not really. I can't really get more clear than that. Um, but something that always pops up in my mind too, when those conversations about like, why isn't Ben Gibbard drinking anymore, or like, uh, uh, you know, this is the this is the best one about that. When he got when it was announced that him and Zoe were getting divorced, like all the comments on Absolute Punk were, 
the next Death Cab album is finally going to be good. <laughs> you know? And I get that. I get that, sure. Like, I, I want, I, I'm a person that likes codes and keys. But if I didn't, I'd be like, yeah, I want another good Death Cab album. But I, I just don't know that there's a reason that, like, there's no, there's no, we don't know that the next Death Cab album is going to be good. You're just assuming that he's going to be sad. Maybe he's happier now because his life isn't, in a toxic relationship anymore. Like maybe he's only happy. You don't know. And maybe maybe he left her for a girl who actually made him happy. He's really happy. We, like that's right, the other thing too is assuming people's variables. personal lives are so ridiculous. Because I and you know it was one of the things we talked about in a previous episode is that half the time when I read people talking about the records I've made and where somebody was emotionally, ninety nine percent of the time it's the exact opposite of what really happened. And the people who make assumptions are, as I call them, the Twitter pundits. I think it's like that speculation is some of the most wasted breath there is on the internet. I'm sure. It's and just then, saying something. Yeah, and then the one last thing I want to say is just because you assume that that artist is going to get back to that place where those songs you left from 10 years ago you still love, like you as a person are in a way different place probably. Right? I think it's fair to assume that. Like I am not... Yeah, I still love the Armor for Sleep songs that I heard when I was 16 as much as I did then or way more even. But I don't I don't think if that album came out today um, that it would hit me like that because I am just in a way different place. Like we're all in a way different place probably or, you know, whether it's emotionally, age or location, whatever, we're in a way different place today uh, than we were than the songs you're pining for from 10 years ago. Like... I went to this brand new show, like I said, and got on the on the train over these brand new bros. That's my TM. Thank you very much. Um, where what like, if they're the same bros that I, that I was, were hoping were going to your barbecue on the bus yesterday? Same, same people for sure. It's like you know they're all like, oh god, I'm gonna be so pissed off if they don't play seventy times seven. Like I remember when I was sixteen, I made a I made an email account called "I hope you choke and die." And I sent an email to a teacher with it, and I almost got, like, expelled. And I was just like, come on, like, I love Brand New kind of thing. And that's great. I love that song, too, so much. It's okay that we all love or don't love that song, but you don't want, like, Brand New writes that song today, part two. Like, you're not going to be stoked. Like, like, unless it's just incredible for some other, like, you know, Max Bemis wrote Admit It Again, and most people don't like that song because... I hate it too. You got exactly what you asked for, like the internet as a collective. Max Mima submitted and gave you exactly what you wanted. And it's a bad song. And like th there's a really just good example of what happens when that goes wrong. Tom DeLonge on an Angels and Airways album wrote Letters to God Part 2. Um, and Letters to God Part 1 is on... Uh, a boxcar racer album and the song itself is fine it has nothing to do with letters of god lyrically or musically the original one but because it's titled letters to god 2 it puts this whole other like spin on it and that no one can necessarily connect to because it, it's just so different and it, it doesn't make sense to something that you care for passionately just be realistic with what you're asking for in my mind. And no one is when it comes to music, of course. But Yeah, but but I can't help but want Mike Kinsella to get to do another American football record all these years later and hope that it's still emotionally the same. It's a it's a legitimate thing to want, but I think we also shouldn't outwardly project those expectations because they're ridiculous. Yeah, and maybe wish and maybe not wish ill upon the artists.
Yes. I wish... Uh, so they can get in a place like that. I wish happiness on every one of my favorite artists. Because hmm. they make me happy, usually. Or Same. miserable. Same. Why don't we talk about another thing where everybody's wrong and we're right? Yeah, it's great that we're as right as we are all the time. Like, this is why this is why we're superior and great. We, we work hard to be all this. We do. Um, so, there's this article that I've been seeing passed around. It's called... Uh, I guess it started with a PBS YouTube video called Is Pop Music Holding You Hostage? So it's basically trying to posit that, like, you don't actually like pop songs and that you're really just a prisoner and your mind tricks itself into liking them because it wants to have its life be easy. And because you hear them everywhere, it just goes, I should like this song even though it kind of sucks. They call it a musical Stockholm Syndrome. So if you didn't Google what Stockholm Syndrome was after you heard it on Blake's self-titled record. Uh, or, or I did. I did. Did I get it right? That's yeah, no. untitled. Untitled yeah, record. Untitled. I forgot. If you didn't Google it, Stockholm Syndrome basically means when you're held prisoner that you start to sympathize with your pr prisoner. So like if I kidnapped you and threw you in your trunk, what often happens with prisoners is they start to, their mind tricks itself and says, you know what, I should make the most of this, and they fall in love with their captors. And this is, uh, it was most famously happened with Patty Hearst, I believe, uh, daughter of the Hearst regime in media, and uh, she became, like, a part of the people who kidnapped her. And uh, it is something that actually happens. But I think this phenomenon is total bullshit. This is a bullshit explanation of a phenomenon. Zach, you agree with me, shockingly. It's a really easy piece to be like... Yeah, duh. Like, I hate the radio. I hate Top 40. I hate whatever, BuzzFeed. So clearly, like, this is I a... I hate BuzzFeed. I hate BuzzFeed. Um, I don't, it's interesting from the website world because this is the kind of thing where it's a perfect article for what it's trying to do. Uh, it's not a perfect article. The content, the uh, the explanation, anything like that, but it's perfect in the sense of it's it's garnered to get shares on Facebook, on Twitter, whatever, on emails, where there's not necessarily a lot of conversation about it, but just kind of like retweet, duh, or like, or whatever. Um, yeah, but basically no one's putting thought into no this, the rea into reality it, yeah. of the nuances of this, which is sadly what a lot of the internet is. Like I read a really good thing about how most of the articles that posit something stupid get shared uh, 180% more than the explanations that explain why it's not right, even when it was totally made up out of thin air. Yeah, so in my mind, this is the kind of article where I can only guess how much traffic, like they've gotten a lot of traffic from this piece for sure. Like Jesse and I have each seen it in a lot of different places. You know, I'm sure a lot of you listening, hopefully, or I don't know, maybe hopefully not, but have probably seen this. It's just kind of lame in that sense. But I, I am with Jesse certainly that this is not an accurate thing to me for so many reasons. Even if you, for once, I might recommend even reading some comments on this post. If you scroll down to the article, there are many that are just like, this article speaks the truth, blah, blah, blah. But there are a lot of people and it's nice to see people fight back sometimes. Um, to me, no one is brainwashing you to do anything about music. I think at one point in the world, we did have subliminal messaging, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case with the latest. No, I, we never had subliminal messaging either. That's not true. Sorry, I, I listened to my dad talk too much yesterday at our barbecue. Just <laughs> I did too. I didn't hear that part, but, uh, What's her name, the uh, the fancy lady? Iggy Azalea. I don't think Ig Iggy Azalea, if she's writing the songs or whoever's writing the songs, is doing anything except making, probably, I assume, or some random top 40 artist is making songs that 
fit into a well-structured theme that people like. And a lot of people can complain about Top 40 for 10 years in a row, but the Top 40 song in 1990 probably didn't sound like the Top 90 song, Top 40 song in 2014. Everything always changes. It can be slowly. It can take a few years on the radio, and formulas always change. I don't think any of that has to do with brainwashing. Even in smaller genres like pop punk, you just got to write good music that fits in a time period, probably. Uh, and that's the best we can all hope to do when we are releasing music, I think. And selling music. So so I think those are all great points, but let, let me get into why, and I, I will factually prove this is bullshit. And um, I should also say, because I'm writing so many books, that my book in a few years is about this. So it's another one. Tons and tons of music are thrown at the public. And it's not just that you automatically get radio placement. One of the reasons an artist like, let's say, Christina Aguilera doesn't have hits anymore or Britney Spears doesn't have hits anymore is they throw throw these songs at the wall to the public. And if they are not getting requests for them and they are not seeing sales figures, they do not get played anymore. Yes, there is a chicken or the egg thing of that the songs get played the most, obviously get heard the most. And that is a thing. But in the song's early stages, if they do not see... Fan enthusiasm, music is democratized enough that it doesn't happen. It's also how a Lisa Loeb or a Macklemore gets on the charts when they don't have as big a machine behind them. And they are also, is it as much of a profit center behind them? What happens in music today, especially now more than ever, is music fans drive the demand. You know, this Iggy Azalea fancy song, I heard it once and fell in love with it. It was not beaten over my head. I think it's a great song. It's the same way I hate myself for liking that Blurred Line song because it's so rapey. But I fully admit it's a fantastic song, and it didn't take more than one listen for me to say that's a fantastic song. So some would say, oh, well, you've been suckered into this pop music thing, and, you know, look at you, you listen to weird dance music, but... Even when you take that away, there is so many artists where they spend so much money trying to make their careers work, and it never, ever, ever, ever works because it takes people emotionally reacting. The only music that gets popular is music that is emotionally resonant. Do some shitty songs get some added push when they get a little bit extra radio stuff? Absolutely. So the other thing, though, that this thing talks about is payola. There is not money in the music business for payola as much anymore. Yes, there still exists payola to a certain extent in that there's these consulting fees to get your money, your music. So I should say this. The way you get your music on a top 40 radio station is you pay it to these people who are radio consultants, and then they present it to Clear Channel, and there's a whole lot of money funneling in there, and that still does absolutely 100% exist. But once it's there, if it's not being requested and it's not selling the radio stations are dying just the way all old media is dying. And if they don't play the songs people want to hear, people turn off. And so I had to drive a car around when I was moving two weeks ago. I can't believe how often they play these same songs, but they've learned that's the only way they can get people to keep listening to their stations is if they play the same damn song over and over and over again. They're just doing what people want to hear. Yeah, and I mean, we, we have a lot of problems in music. This just isn't one of them. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> okay. God, I wish I could brainwash people. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Let's, let's touch on this. I want to dispel this subliminal messages thing. You can incorporate subtlety, double entendre, nuance into your lyrics, suggestion, 
sometimes even a subtle metaphor that people might take and run with, especially 60s anti-war music. There was a lot of that going on. I noticed your father was a big fan of that stuff. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um, when we hear about that kids killed themselves from backwards messages on a Judas Priest record, that's total bullshit. Anything you play backwards on a record exists that you can hear exists just as loud when you're playing it forwards. There's no way of interweaving, and it's all a myth played for on people who don't use the Google. And back when most of this stuff happened, there was no Google. But whatever you play backwards is the same thing as you play forwards. You would hear if there was a reversed vocal in the music. Look at that. It is good having someone that does technical things on this podcast. <laughs> it's as simple as that. That's so weird that no one could dispel that 40 years ago. Strange. But you, but, but, but you know what? The, just as we said, there's more money in the bullshit than there is in the truth. Let me tell you, I posted about ICP this week. Oh, I liked that article. Wasn't that crazy? You guys should really look into this article where... Two IC, two juggalos tried, attempted to cut out someone's tattoo, their roommate's tattoo, uh, because that roommate was not a juggalo. Um, well, not a true juggalo. Not a true juggalo. We do have war at home, folks, and it is mostly <laughs> on the juggalo scene. <laughs> All right. All right. So we have so another subject. Let's do another subject. We uh, we want to throw out. We want to talk about a few apps today, and uh, a little bit of. They're all a little bit different from each other. Uh, before we wrap everything up, there's a new podcast app. I might have mentioned it briefly. I'm not sure. Uh, on a past, I don't episode. think you did actually. Hmm. Well, uh, it's called Overcast. If you are listening to this right now, you are consuming a podcast. Um, there are a ton of podcast clients. I can talk mostly from the iOS uh, side. If you're an Android listener, I don't have much for you. Um, yeah. you, you, but, you also suck. No, I'm sorry. Oh. I don't really mean that. I don't really mean that. Just, I just get mad when I can't te text them from my desktop client. That's coming soon. Anyway, um, with Overcast, uh, Overcast is a new podcast app that launched about three weeks ago from an iOS uh, Indie-ish developer named Marco Arment. Marco was a co-founder of Tumblr. Uh, he also created this other great uh, read later tool called Instapaper. That was the oh, first read later tool. I didn't realize tool. that was him. Yeah, yeah I love yeah, that yeah. thing. So Marco is this really incredible developer that has a very strong voice in the Apple blogger community that also is thankfully talented at what he does with apps. Um, so he had been building Overcast for about a year. Uh, he also has a podcast called Accidental Tech Podcast. That is great. Um, but what is Overcast? Like I said, it's a it's a it's a podcast app, but it has some features that I think are really uh, well deserving of maybe checking it out and maybe doing an in-app purchase. Um, its two most powerful features are called Smart Speed and Voice Boost. Um, so Smart Speed would probably be of great use for someone that listens to Off the Record or any podcast where uh, it takes little gaps between uh, conversations. So if I say something and then Jesse takes 10 seconds to answer me, it'll minimize that. But uh, I edit those out. I know, but a lot of people don't in other podcasts. Um, and it will actually tell you how much time you save. So just in about three weeks, I've saved upwards of four hours of listening due to smart speed. And that's pretty wild. I assume wow. by the end of the year, I will, uh, I will have maybe saved upwards of a day or more 
and listening to podcasts. And that's crazy to me. Uh, so, like I use this tool on my, it reminds me of this tool I use on my Mac um, called Text Expander that I really also recommend to everyone. Um, yeah, it's a great app. Where you would say uh, you you could type uh, semicolon home and it would expand your whole home address. And I do all these crazy snippets for the website because I type the same thing God knows how many times a week. And um, it is just really beneficial and saves me a ton of time. For instance, I have saved uh, 26 hours, 27 hours using Text Expander in about two years. And that's crazy. I've saved a day typing. Um, and think about that for someone like me, how helpful that is. So similarly to... Yeah, to, it leaves you so so much more time to, you know, do all those crazy things you do. I know. I'm wild. Uh, <laughs> dri- 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 drive a hell of a motorboat, I found out yesterday. Thank you. Uh, so smart speed, again, like, you know, we all listen to a bunch of stuff. I, I have a ton of podcasts that I listen to. Uh, I've probably then been able to listen to four more podcasts because of smart speed. Or I've been able to listen to more music or whatever. Um, and then there's this also this feature called Voice Boost. It's just a feature that boosts a normalized volume so every show is loud, clear, and at the same volume. I have found it's very useful for driving in a car or riding in a train, something where there's more than normal noise around you. It also has great playlists. And the hidden gem of the whole feature, the whole podcast app to me, is uh, it has a discovery tool where you can uh, you can recommend episodes, favorite episodes, and if you clue in your Twitter followers, um, your Twitter followers can see what you recommend and you can see what they recommend as well. It's something that I would love to see in a music app in a little different way than what we have in features like RDO or Spotify, where most of them, and Jesse, tell me if I'm wrong, sort of just show what, you've, what your friends are listening to right now or what they've been listening to lately. Um, and I guess it's a little different for podcasts because you can do it by episode where uh, it's just a bunch of random things based on what your Twitter followers are listening to show up in this feed. And it's really cool. I've checked out four or five new podcasts through it, and I like it a lot. I got to start using using these features. I didn't really do any of them. The thing I liked most about it is just that when I hit play on it, there's a real-time analyzer So for non-nerds. Real-time analyzers are shows you the frequency of what you're listening to and, like, what the frequency span looks like. I just like looking at that thing while I listen to my podcast. A lot of people so. have complained about it. I like it, though. R- really? A lot of people think it's, like, just kind of gimmicky cruft. Maybe gimmick's not the right word, but I think that makes sense. Those people don't appreciate the true nuances of sound and what it's like to visualize It was them. apparently hard to, hard to do as well, but he, he figured it out. Um, yeah, I can't imagine that's an easy algorithm. But yeah. He, um, I love that thing, so maybe I need to write in and voice my opposition <laughs> to these nerds who don't like it. A lot of nerds. But yeah, it's a really great app. Uh, also, Marco is just a very smart person, so maybe check out marco.org as well. Uh, the next thing we wanted to talk about was App Venue. Uh, Want to take this, Jesse? You know the app better because you use it. I do know the app better. Uh, fair enough. App Venue is a tool... Um, where for touring bands or merch companies, whatever, some for people that sell things, um, where you can instead of having a lot of cash and a lot of spreadsheets and all of that, uh, at venue is a tool that also fits in with Square and other payment services that helps you better manage the inventory of your merch on the road. Uh, so it helps you count in, count out, it saves you a ton of time. You can 
view it on the internet. You can view it on your, like you can view it on a computer. You can view it on your iOS or Android apps. Um, also, if you have a manager that wants to check up on how much merch is left for a reorder, just to see how you're selling one night, easy, great records, great everything. You can even submit to sound scan through it. Um, so Which it's is a, really, really, uh, really cool because that that's never been really possible without using some really clunky services right, before. For, uh, for example, uh, at Venue actually partnered with all of Warp Tour this summer, so everyone could submit to SoundScan from on Warp Tour this summer using it for just like ten dollars for the whole summer, which is crazy. It's great. Yeah. Um, for example, I think we used that for Real Friend CD sales uh, on Warp Tour this summer, and uh, those were important to us. <laughs> So at Venue published its numbers, uh, some of its numbers, and it took in over $100 million from 4.2 million units of merch in the last 18 months, and that accounted for 25,000 shows. So it's a really interesting tool. Um, where There's a link in the show notes at offtherecord.fm backslash tag backslash episodes um, that also shows what kind of merch is selling. And yeah, that's, the numbers, of course, are just interesting. That's like, wow, a lot of people are using this, obviously, for $100 million. But if you scroll down on this link, it shows what has sold, um, what kind of units they've sold in, and also the, uh, the sales. So the biggest ratio is T-shirts. There have been two million T-shirts sold, and then the least popular is pants. Yeah, um, but I, what I think is even more interesting is T-shirts to CDs. T-shirts have sold about four times as many CDs. Yeah. But then when you even get a T-shirt to tank top, that T-shirts uh, are twenty times more popular than tank tops. Really about 18 or 19. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to give you the solid number, like I said, T-shirts uh, have sold 2 million, and the next highest number is CDs with 533,000. That's a crazy difference. <laughs> yeah, because that's not how it always was, especially in 2002. Yeah, even so, though, almost, you know, 530,000 CDs is kind of impressive as it is. Um, what do you think's making, though, the 11,000 on the magnets? That's what I'm really concerned oh, with. Oh, yeah. Because is it in, say, Cloud Posse? <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta. Um, and, and, and also, you know, that's some nerdy hipster band who sells tea towels. I don't even know. What, what's a tea towel? Some nerd thing. Some nerd thing. Uh, as a counter to the CD, by the way, at Venue has scanned 54,000 vinyl records. And bandanas are not popular, so don't make bandanas. Uh, <laughs> my Agreed. friend likes bandanas, and I don't like them on him. Anyway, um, it's just a really interesting tool. It might actually, for, for bands that have no interest or managers that have no interest in at Venue, it might just be worth checking out to see what sells and what doesn't. Of course, every band and demographic is different, but... You got to imagine this is kind of averaged out for everyone in the same sort of uh, breakdown. I would, I would think anyway. Um, just very interesting to see what sells and, and what doesn't sell, and the possible revenues if you calculate yourself. Hey, if we sell X amount of this versus X amount of that, what might our margins be? But I would really recommend App Venue as well. Um, while I'm familiar with it, my bands don't currently use it, actually. Um, Citizen, a synergy artist band, does use at Venue. Um, I'm hoping to get Knuckle Puck on it, but it, it just hasn't happened yet. Uh, it's just really convenient for everyone involved. It, it's, I think it's, it's an amazing yeah. tool. I, I think every band should be using this. That does, That sells a good enough amount of merch that it matters. Right. I think it's that kind of thing where... 
um, boy, like this is kind of what we've asked for and we are given it. And that, there's not much better than that. Uh, it's not you asking for a musician to go crazy again and write a sad album. It's something concrete. And that is, and something concrete and uh, worthwhile, and that is good. Yeah. So the, the last one is a app called Soundwave, and apparently a lot of people are trying to do this thing where they try to be the Instagram of music. I kind of always liked this idea. It's something that was very obvious. Like it's one of those ideas that I feel like everybody's like, "Oh, I had that idea." Yeah. Well, they actually made a good version of it, and I think that's the thing is. I've seen a couple of these, like, you know, from Useformation, I get pitched these apps all day, and most of them are total junk when I look at them, and I'm bored on the bus. But uh, this one looks pretty cool, and um, it's backed by Mark Cuban. He's got some spot. I like Mark Cuban because he's a fierce liberal, and he's really funny on Shark Tank. Yeah, I like that dude. But um, so, but it also is interesting because it's really good for sharing with your friends songs that you think they'd like, and I do a lot of that. I learn about a lot of the stuff I like because Zach tells me what to listen to that's good in, in pop punk. I tell some of my friends what's good to listen to in weirdo dance music. I think this is a really well-done app, and if you think it'd be fun to see what your friends are listening to and what they would recommend to you, I think that this is a cool app to download because I think this is going to be the one that kind of starts to popularize this idea for music lovers. Yeah, I kind of like we were. I was just mentioning on Overcast that... Um, the uh, Twitter feed thing to recommend podcast episodes. This is not quite that, but it's, it's something interesting. I think um, I'm not necessarily what I, what I like about the idea of this, at least like I like Instagram or Twitter is I can follow the people. I could follow the people I want to follow for their recommendations. I follow a lot of people on Twitter whose music recommendations I just don't want. Um, and cause I, you know, either cause they're my friends or I like them or they share really interesting tech or general news information. But I, Zach, are you, are you, are you sub podcasting me no, right now? Oh, Jesse, I would just <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just random, right? Like some people, God, I really do not want to see their political views, but they're, uh, maybe now I'm some po- sub podcasting you, huh? Uh, you, you know, if I could turn off everything everybody else has to say about sports, I'd be happy if they could turn off everything I have to say about exactly. politics. So for the for this uh, Instagram of music app, Soundwave, uh, it'd be great for me to just follow the 20 or 50 or 5 people that I really trust their music uh, recommendations and maybe some of them trust mine. And that's I, I do think there's a space for that where, you know, that could even be just something. I know like Spotify and RDO do this to exp- to an extent, but I, I kind of like the idea of it on its own siloed off app. Um, I wonder if something like this could be really popular. I feel like it could be potentially for a mainstream sense, but I wonder if I wonder what kind of traction there could be for the smaller genres in general. Um, but I like the idea a lot. Hopefully this is the one that gets the right execution and continues trending, but I feel like eventually we will have something like this and I would be happy to use it for sure. Um, especially me with the site where I'm always looking for the next thing or even with management, whatever. Um, something like this is valuable for, I think, consumer and uh, industry suit person. I, I agree. And I think like the another thing to discuss about is if you missed Last FM, this seems like a cool thing that could help filling that void for you. Absolutely. Cool. So do you have any recommendations? 
Boy, what what have I been doing? I would, yeah, sure. I would, I would absolutely recommend uh, the Gaslight Anthems. Get hurt. That comes out the day this podcast comes out, which is Tuesday, August twelfth. Uh, it is pretty much all I've listened to for the last week. Uh, I have. That's not true. You tortured me with Jack's Medicaid at a motorboat That's yesterday. That's my thing. That's my shit, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, my relationship with the Gaslight Anthem is interesting. I, I like a lot of songs, but I'm not an overall fan of American slang or, or handwritten. Though, I, Like I said, I like songs off both of them. Uh, I just felt like, and I want to I write about this maybe somewhat deeper. I, feel, I felt like American slang... And handwritten were trying to be something that the band never had a chance of being. Whether that's themselves in a metaphor or Bruce Springsteen or whatever, it just didn't hit to me. And I think it didn't hit to a lot of people. But uh, this new album, Get Hurt, sort of feels like it's first the first individual identity from the band since 59 Sound. And I'm very much gravitating to it. So I, I recommend that. Cool. I have to still listen to it. What I have to recommend uh, is two very self-promotional things. Um I mixed a great record that, like, I listened to all the time because I liked it so much. Um, it's a band called Patterns and Waves. And it's kind of like hum meets failure meets, like, a lot of the 90s revival stuff, but with super strong vocals. Um, I just love the badge, and it came out this week, and I've just been rocking it nonstop. And from the moment they sent me the songs, I was so glad I got to mix a record I like this much. And... Um, a group I talked about in the past, Tayana, just put out a new single called By the Bay that I produced, and I really like it. So if you like surfy girl pop, I totally recommend you check that out. Perfect. Well, see you next week. That's fun. Thank you to everyone for listening to Off the Record this week. Head to offtherecord.fm to check out show notes, to leave us any feedback. Jesse can be found at Twitter, at Jesse Cannon. I'm at Z Zarillo, and... Our podcast is at Off The Record FM. We'll be back next week.